listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. Welcome to Syntax and Happy New Year. Happy yeah. 2020. This episode is going live January 1st. Wait, what, when are we recording it? December 16th. So new year, new me. <laughs> I love that saying. New Good year, new me. Um, today we got a potluck for you. All kinds of awesome questions around JavaScript and CSS and hosting applications and soft skills. It's got a good one for you, so stay tuned. We are sponsored by today Kyle Prinsloo's freelancing course, which is available at studywebdevelopment.com forward slash freelancing.html and LogRocket, which is logging and session replay for your JavaScript apps. We'll talk about them partway through the episode. With me, as always, is Mr. Scott Talinsky. How are you doing today, Scott? Doing good. I'm I'm you know what? To be entirely honest, I felt a little felt a little slow the past couple episodes. I'm feeling a little bit more revitalized. 2020, feeling really charged. <laughs> Got some uh, caffeine in the system, and uh, now I'm excited for this year. I'm excited for this month. I'm excited for this episode. So uh, macro to micro, I'm I'm all ready to go. What about you? I am doing pretty good. If this is the last week before Christmas holidays, and uh, my daughter's got a half day on Friday, so I've got. What, four and a half days to wrap up my year. I've got five million emails to reply to, invoices to chase <laughs> yes. down and things like yeah. that. Just trying to button everything up this year. Yeah, I'm feeling a little stressed out in that same same way, trying to get everything where it needs to be. And I just looked outside and it's suddenly a winter wonderland outside. It was like beautiful. And now it's absolutely coming down. Snow's coming down. Colorado. Yeah, Colorado, man. <laughs> wild, wild weather here. Let me tell you. Let's talk about the weather for a little bit longer. Now, let's get into this potluck episode. The first question is from Tim Moran, and Tim asks, uh, Tim asks really good questions, by the way. I think we've gotten several of Tim's questions. I recognize his name uh, from a few other potlucks, but he asks, when you run an audit like Lighthouse on a website, do you run the audit on each page? Have you found an app or a hack to run the audit over the entire site or multiple pages? So, yes, when you do run Lighthouse, it's just running it on the one page that you're running it on. Typically, you're going to want to uh, run those on, you know, the the main pages. As far as running it on everything, I know that would be very difficult for me personally because uh, Level Up Tutorials has a lot of pages, right? We have like let's say 2000 plus tutorial videos and uh, blog posts and um, little pages and stuff that would require auth. So to be able to have an audit automatically run on each page automatically seems really, really kind of tough. Uh, You know what? I I don't know. But the things like Lighthouse, these are good things to run maybe like in the development process once or twice, you don't need to be running these things continuously and really staying hounding on it. Usually it gives you a set of checklists and you you solve those issues. And a lot of times those issues are solved for the entire application. So it's something you want to be cognizant of, but maybe not something you need to be really intense about. That said, we just had an episode on GitHub Actions and we had an episode, well, I guess we haven't had an episode on Cypress yet, but maybe that's a tool that could be baked into your continuous integration via GitHub Actions, something else, or maybe it could be baked into your end-to-end testing with something like Cypress. To be honest, I have no idea. just seems like a possibility. Yeah, I think what would be really cool is if you could run Lighthouse or whatever you're using on the 
pages that were changed. Like you yeah. should be able to figure out what pages changed in this pull request um, and then only run it on those pages. Um, I'm just looking online here. There is a uh, NPM package called Lighthouse Batch will allow you to run it on multiple pages. And there's another one that will allow you to run it in parallel. But certainly if you've got, I don't know, 80 pages, that would that would take quite a while. I think mm -hmm. with these tools, I'll just run it on like the home page. And then if you know it's like a significantly different page, there's a lot of extra code or functionality on that page, then I'd probably run it on there. Yeah, I found one um, called Lighthouse Action. That's a GitHub action there you that go. runs it. But I don't know if it does exactly that. I would need to look at this a little bit more. But definitely something interesting there. Yeah. You would need some sort of custom code that would figure out based on whatever CMS you're using, what pages have changed, yeah. like what pages have been touched. Like, and you could, if it was like a next app, if a component lower down the tree changed, then you'd need to rerun it on the parent page. So I don't mm. know, maybe, maybe somebody out there has a, a solution for that. I would almost want to do it like a custom list of pages to run. Like here are the page, cause I don't need it to run on every tutorial. You just need it to run on one tutorial page, one specific one, one listing, one, this one, that. So then you can't necessarily have it be super auto. Well, you feed it a list and have it go through it, but interesting idea. Um, cool. Next question we have here is from pot belly font pig question. <laughs> what makes a font good? I stumbled upon this website haleyfeej.fun forward slash fonts. It's H-A-L-E-Y. We should probably make sure this is an appropriate website before retweeting it or sharing it, Wes. <laughs> I've been to it. <laughs> it is very appropriate. Um, where she says her first font was not good, but it looks Ooh, perfectly usable bad. to me. What are, um, when you are picking fonts for web apps, how do you judge the fonts is entirely subjective. Um, I, I think there's, there's a couple things probably to it is, uh, how readable is it at a large and a small um, use case? So if you make a font very small, is it is it still readable? Um, I know that there's some fonts that are very hard for um, what's the disorder that you have where dyslexia. Uh, dyslexia. Yeah, mm -hmm. for, there's a lot of fonts that are hard for people with dyslexia to read. So I don't really know what makes a good font and, and what doesn't. That's not really my my area there. But uh, Scott, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, you know what? I mean, I looking at this, especially when she uh, she says this is her first font. It's not very good, but it holds a special place. I'm on the font website, by the way. And what's interesting about this font is it looks really good to me, too. Now, the difference between a font looking good and a font looking good to the person who created it, they could be saying this doesn't isn't good because perhaps it doesn't fit with uh, the things that they've learned about typography as they've grown as a designer or potentially uh, there's little issues here or there with the kerning or the the flow of the font but a lot of this to me personally would seem like it's just a matter of taste and a matter of skill in their own work rather than like i mean you sometimes you look at your code and the code might seem perfectly reasonable to uh, somebody untrained eye but somebody who's also looked at this might say "Ooh, this could be better in these ways and i bet that's the same way with creating fonts to me all of these fonts on this site look super dang good i love all of them especially the one sniglet it looks like it was inspired by katamari damasi which is favorite of mine. So uh, this looks great. I love a lot of this stuff. Check out this page if you haven't. Uh, Fringe is also good. Wow. Very good. Yeah. I think also what makes a good font is that it has upper and lower case, um, has accents available. You can't just yes. think like 
most English doesn't have accents, but pretty much every other language does. Some fonts will account for letters that come after it. So if you have an A and E, they'll give you that cool AE thing. <laughs> Even like one of my favorite fonts, which is Radnica, um, I use Radnica Next. I use that on my JavaScript, beginnerjavascript.com course. And if you inspect the AVA of JavaScript, you'll see that I just wrapped a span around it and had to really bump down the letter spacing because the like the weird case where an A and a V and an A all came together, there was just these like massive gaps in between each of the letters. I'm like, that looks awful. Mm-hmm. So I had to like go in and kerning in, in JavaScript sucks because you just have to wrap a span around each of the letters and <laughs> yeah. bump it around. Yeah. Where was that? There was a plugin for that where it wrapped automatically wrapped. What was that? I, I've written it a hundred times before. I call it Sparan wrap. Oh, nice. Where it just it's splits your letter. There was one that was made by, uh, I think, DeSandro, maybe uh, that automatically wrapped each one in the, with a letter with its own class. So we used to use that all the time back in the day, a jQuery plugin. Uh, OK, cool. Uh, so let's get into this next one from Adam K. And it's as a solo founder, speed is essential. So Adam is a speed demon. What's faster, building your <laughs> own components, using a theme or using a framework? Well, if you were just looking into what's the fastest, like number one, the fastest, I think the fastest is using your own framework that you've written yourself. Why is that the fastest? Because you're, uh, if you've written your own framework, and it encapsulates everything that a, you might need to do, then you know how to use it really well because you wrote it and you probably have used it before. That's probably number one, the fastest to me. Uh, second most being using any other framework like uh, Tailwind or Bootstrap or something like that. Those are going to be very fast, especially if you have worked with them before and know it. If you don't know it, not going to be as fast. That's to me, if speed is like the number one most essential thing, then that's it to me. But I don't think speed is number one, the most important thing, but that, yeah, that's another conversation, I think. Yeah, my my course backend, I built it in foundation because I wanted speed. I wanted just to slap this thing together and get it up really quickly. And now I regret it because now whenever I want to like modify one of my course cards, mm. I don't have like a course card I can work on. I've got 15 different classes that I have to like overwrite. Uh, on each of them. So a uh, long term, a short term, getting it up and running, just just ship it. Absolutely. That's the fastest. Not writing tests for your JavaScript. That's much faster than actually writing tests. Long term, it's going to bite you in the butt for things like that. Unless you do it properly. Obviously, you can approach any of these frameworks properly. But if you're just thinking like, I just need to get something up long term, and that might not matter. You might not care about long term. You might just care about getting it up and running. So And if you do long term care about it, I would recommend writing your own anything because we recently uh, rewrote the entirety of the CSS for level up tutorials. And we did so starting fresh from a design system perspective. And we redid the design system in Figma, did it all out and then rewrote all the components. And let me tell you right now, we could not be any faster adding things to the site because everything has a component. It all works the exact way it should. Here's a layout. Here's a card. Here's whatever. It all fits together like a perfect little system that we designed it to do. And to me, that is really essential. I don't even have to look up any sort of documentation because I wrote it along with Eric and designed it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very about writing your own thing, but in the same regard, that isn't the fastest. It's just the fastest after that framework has been 
written itself. All right. Uh, next question we have here is from Tim. Hey, guys. Love the show. Thank you, Tim. I've never been a tea drinker, but lately I've been wanting to start drinking hot tea in the afternoon instead of coffee. I know Scott is a tea guru. What would your suggestion be for starting out? This is a great question because I think all of us probably drink a little bit too much coffee and Scott knows the stuff here. So lay it on us, Scott. How do you, what would you suggest (laughs) someone getting into tea? There's a lot of variety in tea from black teas down to white teas, right? So you go, uh, black is the strongest, most caffeine, strongest flavor, uh, white, the least amount of caffeine, the, I don't want to say the least amount of flavor, but then maybe the more subtle of flavor. And then you have stuff in between. You have yellow teas, which is a little bit more. You have green teas, which is more than that. You have oolongs, which have their own characteristics. There's so much variety in teas, not to mention the amount of fruit or, or flavoring you can add to them. My one suggestion would for tea would be to stay away from something like Tivana, where everything is just like filled with sugar. Uh, they just add a bunch of sugar to stuff. So I wouldn't go crazy because those are those are delicious by all means, but they're not one. You miss the characteristics of the tea, but you also just don't need that much sugar in your life, especially from something like tea. I personally uh, my my favorite teas are all Chinese green teas. Um, I, I like some Taiwanese oolongs. I like some some interesting stuff. I think you need to try teas and, and don't be afraid of them if you don't like it. Uh, don't worry about it. Start buying teas in small quantities rather than large quantities until you like really find some that you like, because there's some very different characteristics. For instance, uh, puer teas are like fermented dark teas, and those Ooh. can be really strong and very smoky, and they can almost have some like real earthy qualities that a lot of people don't like. So if you try one of those and think it's going to be representative of all your teas, not going to be the case. Now, last year, uh, my brother got me this cool little subscription to a place called Sipsby. It's, uh, you know, one of those box services type things uh, where they send you some stuff. And I found it to be really pretty good. You give it uh, some qualifications to say, okay, these are the kind of flavors I like. This is the stuff I might be interested in. This is how much I know about tea, right? You could say, I don't know anything. And what they do is they send you a box of four different teas, and I found it to be pretty reasonable. The the teas were all good that I got from there. They get them from several different places. It's all loose-leaf tea. You drop it in. Um, so I would suggest stick with loose-leaf tea. You know, use a filter or whatever because the teas are high quality. Uh, find some service that allows you to try or test out tiny amounts of teas or just go to your local loose leaf tea store. We have some amazing ones here in Colorado. If you're in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Tea House represent. That's my favorite tea shop. Uh, they do a lot of great testing. But um, yeah, buy small quantities and try a bunch of different teas. Chinese greens are where I'm at. It's really hard because there's so many different varieties of flavors. But if you have specific flavors you want, feel free to hit me up on Twitter and I can do my best to uh, point you in the right direction. Next question is from Michael Reed. Uh, he he also let us know that it's Reed as in R-E-E-D, not read like you read a book because it's the, <laughs> the Yeah, so thank you, Michael. Uh, is it worth bundling JavaScript for websites that aren't using a framework, i.e. WordPress or CMS websites? The company I work for uses several or uses a a large enterprise CMS 
And our JavaScript is just a minified mash of several different JS files, most of which are several hundred lines of spaghetti code. It would be nice to break up all these files and store in a modular way and have the added benefit of using Babel so we can write modern JS. However, the output of bundled JS seems massive. Won't that hurt the performance on page load? Hmm. This is a tough question for me uh, because I haven't worked in CMS websites enough recently to know the right answer. Like if I have, that's one of the reasons why I'm reaching for a headless situation because you yeah. get a lot of those benefits, right? The code splitting. Um, but then again, you're, you are adding the, the issues of a front end framework. The question is saying like, we already minify it, right? But if we bundle it, it's huge. I don't get that. I don't get that either because if they're minifying it, that's doing a process to it. So like in that case, why couldn't you use Babel to transform it before you minify it, right? Yeah, your bundle's not going to be any bigger than the code that you write unless unless what's happening is that you have seen some sort of bundler that's including every sort every single polyfill under the sun. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Like the, absolutely you should should be bundling your code um and then that opens you up to using things like Babel and yeah. all kinds of really neat stuff. So when I wrote a lot of Drupal, we always used Gulp on the back end mm -hmm. to do the the compiling. So are you compiling your CSS? What are you doing for your CSS? Is there a build tool, Grunt, Gulp, one of those? If you're using one of those, then you could probably throw Babel in there too. I can't imagine you have that much JavaScript in a CMS-based website that's being thrown. I don't know. That's it. like the only time I, I ever had that much JavaScript is when you're including a bunch of libraries or doing full front end stuff. So this is, yeah, this is a tough answer, I think. But yeah, you should probably be using a bundler, in my opinion. It shouldn't be that difficult if you're already using something to compile your CSS. You know what's a show I want to do in the new year? I guess it is the new year while you're listening to this, is like for years we've been saying HTTP2 will stop us from bundling. And like the whole idea behind HTTP2 is that a request to the server for like eight JavaScript files and 14 CSS files will only make one request. So like it doesn't matter if you have a thousand script tags on your page. And people have been saying that forever. And and I'm kind of sitting here and been like, can we do that now? Or like, why are we still bundling? I heard HTTP2 is going to kill uh, GraphQL too. Well, there was an article on that. And now HTTP3 is out. Whoa. Can we just jump to a, what is this? What does what the HTTP think it is? Angular? <laughs> <laughs> So like and like most servers are are supporting this already. So I don't know like I, I don't know enough about this space. I'm sure somebody listening does. You can tweet us or or maybe we'll find someone to come on the show uh, and explain. Is that actually true? Like it, even like with the, the reason why people think it's going to kill GraphQL is because you will be able to make multiple requests to like let's say you've got a component that hits your API endpoint 14 times. And that will fire off 14 different requests. Apparently, that'll be fine with HTTP2. But I've, I haven't actually heard anybody just doing that and saying it's fine. So I'd be curious to see what that looks like. I'm curious as well. I'm very curious. Uh, I'm, also, <laughs> uh, I'm also curious about becoming a better freelancer. 
One of our sponsors today is studywebdevelopment.com. Now, studywebdevelopment.com has this really cool bundle, which is everything you need to know to master freelancing. And it has been taken by over 2,000 students. It's really super cool. And let me tell you, there's a ton of stuff in here, including a freelancing and beyond ebook, uh, CSS and HTML templates, a private Slack and Facebook community, portfolio templates, uh, client questions which is something that you can give your clients before starting a project, an SEO checklist to make sure that you are giving your clients everything that they possibly could need. There is a ton of stuff, including lifetime updates. Like I can't even tell you exactly how many things are in this. And there's actually going to be some new additions to this bundle as well, including a legal contract. So you don't have to pay a lawyer to write a contract for you. Uh, CSS Spice Chrome extension, which is actually pretty cool. It's a Chrome extension that helps you inspect and copy CSS from other websites and a brand new ebook called Web Design and Beyond, which is focused on equipping you to create the most effective websites to get results for your clients. So head on over to studywebdevelopment.com and use the coupon code SYNTAX for 25% off the bundle. Again, that is the coupon code SYNTAX at studywebdevelopment.com. Thank you so much for studywebdevelopment.com for sponsoring. Next question we have from Skydog. What's up, Skydog? Um, yeah, Skydog. Uh, there are one, one critique, because Skydog asks a really good question here. I'm just going to say that up front. Uh, yeah. But Skydog missed opportunity of spelling dog, D-A-W-G. D-A-W-G. Oh, what is that? We just have, well, dog, man. Dog, like dog instead oh, of like dog, dog, D-O-G. It's true. We, we do get a lot of these questions that are um, <laughs> phrased this way. Anyway, Skydog. Hey, guys. I love this <laughs> podcast so flipping much. Thank you for, for watching your language, dog. I love how you you do your best to keep the content fresh and current as well as interesting. And let's be honest, fun. Thank you, dog. I know both of you put out a ton of content and both together individually. I'm curious to see if you listen to any other podcasts there in the land, any other types of content that you consume uh, to hone in on your skills and pay the bills. Thanks. Oh, and peace. (laughs) All right. So uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but very few tech podcasts just because... I don't know. I, I think that's why we made this podcast. I didn't particularly enjoy a lot of these podcasts because they they're not all that exciting or interesting, and the audio is often awful on them. Um, but the tech ones I do listen to. I listen to Shop Talk Show. Not all of them, but quite quite a few of them. Um, Chris Coyer also has a really good one called the Code Pen um, Code Pen Podcast. Whatever the Code Pen Podcast is called, I really enjoy that one. And then I just listen to. Mostly things about getting scammed. I'm a big fan of the uh, heist podcast that has every week they talk about different heists that they have. I used to listen to the Mixergy podcast, which is a really good one for having stories from people who have sold a business or grown a business or things like that. I don't listen to it all that much anymore because I listened to it for, I don't know, like six years or something yeah. like that. And it's it's starting to get a little bit repetitive for me, at least like not no no shade thrown on the podcast. It's just I'm in a different spot in life right now. So those are kind of one, ones I have. And just I've been listening to the dream that Scott sick picked the other day, Ooh. season two. And also I figured out they had a 
like an in-between season that I did too. Yeah. LuLaRoe with the leggings. Oh, it's so good. good one. Yeah, Yeah, that was great. (laughs) So that's me. What about you? Um, I, so, okay. Yeah. I, I added ones that are, are tech and tech adjacent here because I, I always give my, my six yeah. that are podcasts that are not. And so I listen to the react pad, uh, the react podcast, uh, with the fantastic Chantastic. Uh, he is the man tastic, I suppose. Uh, he, no, uh, I really <laughs> love react podcast. Um, not just because I've been a guest there, but it's really one of my favorite uh, really just great shows, great guests, and always learn something. Indie Hackers, uh, which uh, we featured Cortland on the show as well. Indie Hackers, absolutely love Indie Hackers. I think I learned so much from different founders there um, just yeah. about growing their businesses and even just what they should be doing. One I listened to that is also tech adjacent is Akimbo by Seth Godin. And it's... Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Akimbo is fascinating because it's a marketing sort of that type of podcast, but in a little bit more of an abstract way, I found it to be very thought provoking in a way I really enjoy. I also really liked command line heroes. Command line heroes tells the sort of the history of different programming topics from the creation of Linux to all sorts of stuff. I really liked command line heroes. Um, I continue to listen to that. So I don't listen to a ton of tech podcasts. Like I said, I listen to a ton of hockey podcasts and comedy podcasts and then a bunch of podcasts about uh, apparently scams and swindles so yeah <laughs> that's, that's really my wheelhouse oh that's great next question is from kareem hussein and this is uh what are your thoughts on blazer blazer uh is it a good move to be an early adopter of a framework like this or should you focus on ones that are already in fully released state like react or view etc also, I want to say that you guys are keeping me company in the car back and forth to the office. Thank you for an awesome podcast. BR from Sweden. Uh, thank you, Kareem. Um, okay, thoughts on Blazor. One, I had to oh, I had to Google Blazor. Uh, yeah. We've been told about Blazor before, right? It's come up before on this podcast. Blazor, for those of you who don't know, is build client web apps with C Sharp from Microsoft. Now, let me tell you, the amount of C-sharp I've ever written in my entire life is a whopping zero. Uh, so I'm not reaching for Blazor simply before, because I don't know anything about C-sharp. I, I literally know nothing about it <laughs> other than that it exists as a programming language. And this thing runs through WebAssembly. So it looks cool, I guess. That said, it's not really that enticing to me because of the technology. I'm not going out of my way because I don't use, like it says here, Blazor is a feature of ASP.NET, the popular web development framework that uses, okay, I don't use ASP.NET. I don't, I never use .NET. I don't use C Sharp. This is not in my wheelhouse at all. And I probably wouldn't reach for it. That said, it's by Microsoft. I mean, it, it's got some backing behind it. And if you're a C Sharp person and you are interested in an order, you work in .NET, this seems like a great thing to use here. I just don't ever do anything like this. Yeah, I would have written this off as silly a couple of years ago, but there's a number of different things out there. What's that other language that you compiles down to JavaScript, but you write your... Reason? You write... OCaml? No. There's a couple of different things out there like this where you write in either a different language or you write in this new custom language mm-hmm. that they have and it will compile down to JavaScript. And I think that's really cool. And... I think it's really neat that people are always constantly 
reevaluating it, being like, hey, wait, is JavaScript the best for this thing? And it might not be like we might not be writing JavaScript in or might not even be writing TypeScript in five years. You know, it would go a lot slower than five years, probably 10 years. So maybe uh, check it out. I just did a quick scan of the website. And um, just from looking at it, it gives me a very corporate feel. They link off to like Telerik stuff, which is they always have like a, they used to have that like Kendo UI, which was like a super expensive UI library for jQuery, things like that. So I think this probably has a, a good spot in like the corporate land where you have a lot of developers that know C Sharp and love C Sharp and love approaching things in the Microsoft D way. So I would give it a shot, but like I haven't really heard all that much about it. So I would let's see on GitHub. We're also not like in tune with the ASP.NET crowd, though. I think we figured no. that out that we're we're certain there's some communities we're definitely not in tune with as much as we probably should be. No, I, I mean, it looks cool. I wish I, I had a little bit more information on, on something like this. I would stick with something like React. But if you're an ASP head uh, or a C Sharp head, yeah, I mean, sure. Use it. Try it out. Depends on what you're productive with, to be honest. Yes. All right. Um. I would like to ask how you make yearly subscriptions in a website. Specifically, Scott does yearly subscription. Um, also, how do you give a lifetime locked yearly subscription? Yeah, that's interesting. So how, how do subscriptions work? You want to give us a rundown how that works in your your platform? Yeah. So I've, I've set up a couple subscriptions via Stripe or via Braintree, but typically subscriptions work this way. You have, uh, it depends on how you work, but typically you're selling some sort of access, like a role level, right? We had a whole episode on roles and roles can determine who has access to what, right? So what you're doing is you're simply selling the toggle to make somebody a pro or a premium user, right? And then that gives them uh, different credibilities on the site or credentials, credibilities. Um, so here we have a checkout form like you would typically have any other checkout form. It has a product, which is a subscription in most of your different services, whether you're using something like Braintree or Stripe or even a subscription service based SaaS, you have a product that's actually specifically for a subscription. And guess what? All of that reoccurring billing, all of that holding on to users often um, in their, their, what's it called? Their tokenized payment form. All of that stuff is held at the payment processor. Okay. So you buy a product. It tells Stripe or Braintree, whoever, that this person signs up and that you are authorized to charge them at whatever interval you have made it clear. And the payment processor holds on to that token and holds on to that authorization. It's all been authorized, okay? So because it's all been authorized, you don't need to hold anything in your own personal database. And I would strongly prefer not to, to be honest. I don't want to be responsible yeah. for credit cards. or So no credit card numbers, stuff like that gets stored in your database. Correct. Because people always ask me, can you remove my credit card information from your database? I don't have it. Uh, Braintree just simply has an authorization to charge you. Okay. So that's what happens. It basically comes in and says, yes, the, the charge was successful. If the charge was successful. Then you go ahead and you, you apply that role, you give them access. And then from that point, everything else is basically web hooks. So your website will receive messages from the payment processor. In my case, it's Braintree. Braintree sends my website a message that says, this 
customer account number has been correctly charged, or this customer is about to be charged, or this customer charge was failed. And there's a whole ton of different messages. <laughs> Let me tell you, there's yeah. like 40 different messages and <laughs> you don't have to respond to all of them because some of them don't really matter. Like I don't have trials, so I don't have to deal with any of the trial webhooks. But based on whatever webhook is coming in, then you then have to adjust accordingly. For instance, if the payment has failed three times and the user subscription is canceled, I will, I will be getting a canceled subscription webhook message. And with that message, it has a customer ID. I look up that customer ID in the database with the results of the webhook and remove their permissions accordingly. And then I update their user account with the updated information that has come via that webhook. So everything is basically, it, it works like a product. You, you buy the product, it goes off into the billing land and the webhook sends messages, it's charging. You don't have to worry about the timing. You don't have to worry about storing data, any of that hard stuff. You just simply have to worry about what happens when they purchase, what happens when they cancel all these specific events? So we should say real quick, a webhook is like an opposite of a fetch request. So instead of you pinging Stripe's server and asking for information, Stripe will ping your server. Yep. So the way that you set it up is you give Stripe or, or Braintree or whatever, you give them URLs and you say, when this happens, ping this URL with a payload of information. And then Scott has code on his server that will, will act accordingly. I use that as well with, Anytime there is either suspected or or a suspected fraudulent payment or mm -hmm. there's actual fraud or someone has charged back something, it will immediately go and lock that person's account. So while we can sort of get that sorted out. So that's a, that's a webhook because PayPal or Stripe will tell me that there's something going on um, and that will hit my hit an endpoint on my API, authenticate it um, and then go ahead and lock down that user's account. Yeah, I have, I should say I have a, a an endpoint, a, like a specific endpoint on my server that's only used for the webhook. I have one for my Stripe webhook, one for my Braintree webhook. So uh, you do have to create those server side routes to accept those webhooks. And when somebody subscribes on like the 14th of, of the month, do you just charge them? Like if it's monthly, do you just charge them on the 14th of every month then? Yep. Yeah, so it's not like a prorated yeah, I do personally. Yeah, it's not prorated. A lot of the payment processors, they give you the opportunity to do whatever you want. So you could say always charge the first of the month. And I just think it's easier to not have to do that. Right. So you have the flexibility and specifically with Braintree, like the thing I kind of hate about Braintree is that they make it very flexible. But at the same regard, because it's so flexible, you have to do everything yourself. And that can be really frustrating. For instance, when you cancel a subscription, you can't just say cancel because that like cancels it outright. So what you have to do is with Braintree, you just say, oh, cancel this. And, or I mean, Stripe. Stripe, you say cancel the subscription and, and Stripe says, okay, I gotcha. At the end of the, the term, we're gonna do everything you need to do to cancel this subscription. With Braintree, you have to set the total amount of billing dates to be one plus what the current amount of billing dates is. And oh, then man. you have like, it's like, you have to do all that stuff yourself. And if you goof it up, uh, or if for some reason the data isn't correct or the data isn't there, there's just no safeguards in the system. They cancel it, removes all the user information. You're just like, 
gosh, Braintree, I would really love a little bit of help here because you would have to imagine that every single person who uses the Braintree API would have to do these same things. And so it's like you ever ping them and you say, hey, it'd be really great to have these sort of methods in your API. And they're like, if you need help implementing, and I don't need help. It's just that companies like Stripe, uh, people like them because the developer experience is really nice. And I just don't get that from Braintree. That said, for the most part, they give you the things that you need to be able to handle any of those situations. And what do you do when I'm sure this gets really complicated where someone get uses like a coupon for yep. that year and then like the next year? How does that work? Do they get that same rate or are they charge yeah. more and things like that? This is a hot topic for me because I kind of learned my lesson on this one in the past. I, I the language was very explicit in the um, the Black Friday sales. And it would say, you get this price off of the first year of the subscription. And um, it was very explicit and that's what it was. But I get so many people yeah. that said, I just got a rate increase. And after, and, and I feel bad about it because I didn't want that to be deceptive at all. I, that's just how I chose to run the sale. Uh, so if, if you did get charged that, like a, a more amount for the second year, like I will refund the difference and set you up for life. Because this year, what we did for the Black Friday sale is we said, this is your Black Friday price for life until you unsubscribe. Okay. So you have the option to say either. And I just so happened to make a bad choice on that two years ago. <laughs> so uh, I, I changed the language about it this year and I changed the actual process because it was too confusing. I think it, a lot of the times you get the flexibility to do any of this stuff. Um, you have a thing about here on refunds too. Refunds, for the most part, just work through webhooks. If I do a refund or a cancel on my end, it sends a webhook message saying they're canceled. I don't have to worry about the user roles or anything. What if they want to refund like four months into 12 months? Uh, there is a checkbox in Braintree to prorate it. Okay. And same with Stripe is, is way better about all of that stuff. You could count on <laughs> if, if if there's something that exists, Stripe has done it better than Braintree. But um, Braintree definitely just checkbox prorate. And it, it figures all that date time stuff out for you. Thank God. Wow. Interesting. Very, very complicated. It's much easier for me. Buy it, you have it. It's very complicated. Yeah. And I'm implementing enterprise accounts right now. And that's even more complicated because you have to think about who owns the account, uh, what yeah. users have access to the payment method. Like there's just a lot there. It's such a pain. I, I'm getting that as well right now. And the enterprise is really interesting because they want lots of like functionality to like see if their employees are taking the course and not like that. And I don't have that yet. And they're asking for it. And I'm like, I don't want to build that. But also like they're buying like thousands of licenses from me. So, yeah, it's uh, it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> you know what is also tough? Figuring Ooh. out why your Ooh, JavaScript yeah. went Ooh, yeah. south. South for the winter. There's a lot of geese going south in Denver right now. And the best way to determine if your code has gone south is to use a tool like Log Rocket. Unfortunately, I guess rockets don't really fly south. They go straight up. But uh, LockRocket is the tool and the service that allows you to get a handle on the errors and bugs that are happening in your site in the most visual of manner. Let me tell you, I'm a visual person. Uh, so this is the kind of tool for me specifically because I like to see what went wrong. I don't just want the error log, which you do get, 
But what you do get is a session replay, a video replay that is scrubbable along with the network requests, along with your Redux store, along with any sort of console errors, you get all of that. And anytime an error has happened on your site, you can see that. Now, one thing that we like to do on our own implementation of LogRocket is attach an identity to a user. And so that way, when a bug comes in, we can see that bug happen on what specific user actually triggered that bug. And then we can see what they did to make it happen. And if you want to try out LogRocket yourself, head on over to LogRocket.com forward slash syntax and you'll get 14 days for free. So check it out. Let me tell you, this thing is super duper cool. Absolutely love this service. All right. Uh, next question here is from B. What's up, B? Uh, I feel like other developers code is always shorter, better structured and easier to read than mine. Any tips or resources on writing good, clean JavaScript code or any functional programming language? Uh, my, this is, this is often referred to as the gap in design is the gap between your aesthetic. Uh, this is like sort of a loose interpretation of the gap, yeah. but <laughs> it's a, a difference between your, your tastes and what you're capable of producing, I guess is the easiest way to say it. And so I often felt this way. A lot of times I'd see, especially in the, what are those sites like Code Kata or those ones where you'd, you'd uh, do code challenges. And I would produce this behemoth that's 30 lines of code. And then you see somebody figure that out in one liner with a dot map and a reduce or something. And you just say, huh, I'm feeling really, uh, really bad about myself. But the important thing is that we're all on a journey here to learn code. And specifically, we're always on a journey to improve. If you're not looking at the code you wrote last year and thinking, oh, what was I thinking? I, I could do that so much better right now. Then I don't know if you're progressing enough because I do that all the time. I'm always feeling like I learned so much or gotten so much better. Any refactor of my code always feels like the code is so much better. So one thing I would recommend is to read code from those kind of sites. I like those code kata challenges. You can read those things, those, uh, those code tests, see other people's solutions, and don't just look at the solution and say, oh, okay, it works, but actually look at what they're doing and why and see if those kind of things really take the time to understand it. Because the more time you put into understanding the reasoning behind it, the better opportunity you'll have to make those same decisions yourself in the future. Now, another thing I really love myself is the clean code JavaScript repo on GitHub. We've referenced this several times. I live by this thing. I absolutely love it. It taught me a lot about functional programming in general, but it mostly taught me about writing good, clean JavaScript code. And I absolutely love this repo. So check this thing out. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, I, I think with this kind of thing, especially if you're just learning, it sounds like you are just learning. Don't sweat it. Uh, you just have to make it work however it is that you can. Because if you're just trying to like, if you're just like stressing out over like, oh, I could do this in less code or I can make it more beautiful. You just don't know how to do that yet. And I, you'll get better and better as you write more code um, in the resources. I'm going to plug my own stuff because I think it's legit good. You just need to watch other people code and read other people's code. And I, I think go doing my JavaScript 30 course is is good for this because um, we're in the headspace of saying, OK, we've got this array of objects and now we need to filter them and attach, a, make each one into a div and then attach event listeners to the button inside. 
And you're like, okay, I'm in the headspace. These are three things that we need to do. How would I do it? And maybe try go do it yourself and then see how I would do it. Certainly mine is not the best way. Mine's not the only way. I get emails all the time from people being like, why didn't you do it this way? And like, there's thousands of different ways to, to do things. And mine is just one way that I thought was a good way when I recorded the video. Mm-hmm. And you'll learn a lot uh, about that. And you'll also learn not to to really sweat about that kind of stuff as much anymore. Just watch other people code and and look at other people's code, like Scott said, and you'll get better over time. And it's, like Scott said, also, it's just a constant change of, oh, I would rewrite this thing over and over and over again. That's one of the reasons why I love refactoring so much. You know, it's like a, it's a meme at this point, how much I love refactoring, but I honestly, yeah. I love looking <laughs> at old code and being like, you know what? This thing could really be so much more elegant with a reduce, with a map, whatever. So, you know, that's just me. Next question we have here is from Brian. Uh, both of you have CMS backgrounds, Scott with Drupal, Wes with WordPress. When you were moving when you moved to freelancing, did you build for clients using a CMS or did you create a custom admin interface for clients to manage their own site? Uh, you mentioned some headless WordPress in the past, but what was the norm? Thanks for the great show. Okay, absolutely don't create your own thing. Um, this this <laughs> was a big thing back in the day and I have worked on tons of custom cake PHP CMSs because every... Everybody out there thought we could make this own custom CMS that our clients would love and we could charge them 50 bucks a month to to actually use it. And um, WordPress won out over that. And I think we're also starting to see that now with there's a whole bunch of uh, headless CMSs. And and that I don't think that that has been finalized yet in terms of like what is the one that everybody is, is going to be using. So if you're doing freelance absolutely don't build your own CMS. You're just going to be, you're reinventing the wheel in terms of file uploads and drag and drop reordering. Like just, just I'm thinking you upload six photos to a field and drag and drop reorder them and then add captions to each of them. That would take you like three years to code that yourself. <laughs> don't, don't do it yourself. Uh, absolutely use something off the shelf. Yeah, I know. One thing I do stand for with this is not creating something custom but and and not necessarily customizing what's there, but limiting your users options. So specifically, I don't I know this is possible in WordPress in different ways. Drupal makes this very easy, but I always would whenever I would pass off a site to somebody, you have one person maybe that's techie who can have access to everything, right? This is the administrator. But a lot of the times the people who would pass off a Drupal site to somebody else wouldn't realize that that person is going to get very confused if they load up Drupal's backend and see a thousand different options. So I personally always took the extra time to really fine tune permissions, but also the display stuff within Drupal. If someone's a blog post editor and all they need to see is blog posts, then do not give them access to uh, the other stuff. The, the anything, right? Give them access to what they need to have and give one person the ability to have access to everything else. Because then it is a custom backend, as in it's like customized to what those users are needing, but it's all built in in the same system. You don't have to worry about the whole custom code aspect. So uh, definitely something that I highly recommend is really fine tuning those permissions before passing it off. Uh, ain't nobody want to have a whole big list of Drupal stuff or WordPress stuff in front of them if they don't know what it is. 
All right, last question. Hey, Scott and Wes, you are obviously very successful with your course careers. Yes, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but do you miss client work? If people for some reason ever stopped buying your courses, which they won't, no, you're crazy. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> would you go back to client work? And this is from Andre McNamara. No, um, so this is a, a tough one for me because I love doing the course development. If I didn't get paid for it, I would love to create more free content. I, I love making courses. So it would be really tough for me. You know, one thing I don't like about doing client and freelance work specifically is I don't like uh, having to keep track of all that stuff myself, being a manager of myself for, you know, client communication, whatever. If I worked at a agency, I would be okay. I would be fine. Um, having somebody else as a project manager, somebody else just say here, push this code here, do this stuff here, whatever. But to be honest, I've grown so accustomed to working on my own code projects the way I like to, being able to explore and whatever, I would have a hard time going back to that life. That said, I would probably just pick up the agency work like I did before, and I would crush it just like I did last time. So, <laughs> Yeah, the, the one thing I miss about client work is the ability just to start fresh, especially because the, the types yeah. of things that I was working on was mostly... I would come into a company and build something either by myself or with their team. And then we would hand it off to internal team to be maintained, which is the dream because like maintaining software is not as nearly as fun as just creating it from scratch and, and beginning to choose all the technologies and stuff like that. So uh, I certainly miss that aspect of it. If I were to stop selling courses, would I go back to it? Probably. I, I probably would also try <laughs> my hand at creating some sort of of application product. Yeah. Yeah. Product, something like that. That's something I haven't really done. And it's Same. it's somewhat appealing to me. There's always this like idea in the back of my head to like productize my course platform, which I'm not going to do. Don't email me about it. Everybody always does. But one day mine would be better. Mine would be better for that. <laughs> Why? Because uh, I don't know. I'm just joking. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I got nothing to back that up. OK. I was just trying um, to, I was trying to pump up my course platform, Wes, oh. and, and you didn't want to go along with it. Oh, no, sorry. I wasn't, I wasn't having that. I would probably like go down that route of, of, of building some productizing something like that. It would be, be pretty good. But yeah, I definitely do miss client work every now and then, but uh, I, I think I could go back to it no problem and, and be pretty successful at it. Yeah. If I were to say, do I like working on client sites or level up tutorials more? I definitely like working on my own thing more, even though yeah. I happen to refactor it all the time. But just because I have this huge sense of ownership and pride over this thing that has been my baby for so many years now that like I will, you know, do anything for the site. I, I work so hard on this site, whereas like a freelance project, uh, if you get it you don't always have that. And you're just like, all right, this thing's going to be out of my hair in, you know, a month anyway. So let's just get, knock it out rather than this like full on ownership or something. I guess if you have a long-term client at an agency or something or a long-term client, you can definitely get that, but it's not going to be the same as your own course or your own platform overall. All right, let's move into some sick picks. What do you have for me today? Sick picks. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this might be your first episode. Sick picks are the stuff that we pick that we like. It could be anything. Uh, a lot of times it's 
podcasts or YouTube channels or something. This is a TV show and this is a TV show based on a series of other shows. So I'm going to call out one specifically, but all of the shows in this series are fantastic. Uh, I absolutely love Ariel America. And now uh, I spelled Ariel like the font in here for some reason, instead of Ariel like above. Like the fish? Yes, like the fish. Fish? <laughs> Mermaid. Oh, yes, Mermaids are fish, aren't they? Yeah, I guess so. But how many times have you ever heard somebody be like, oh, yeah, that fish? I, I have not. <laughs> um, but let me tell you, Ariel America is basically just like, I don't know if they're drones or helicopters. They're, they're above shots of every single different thing in the United States, different states, uh, different. There's one on just Yellowstone. I recently watched one on Alabama. I've never been to Alabama, but well, I, I can't. I've, I've driven through Alabama. I've never hung out in Alabama. And let me tell you, I learned a lot about Alabama from this thing. There's so much going on in our country of the United States is where I live. Uh, the, that I don't want to say our either way, there's so much going on that you don't know about that is absolutely fascinating to see from an aerial perspective from all of the different little nuances of the different states. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Michigan episode as well as the Colorado episode, as you can imagine. Uh, totally not biased in either of those declarations, but uh, check this show out. It's on the Smithsonian channel, I get it on YouTube TV, but it should be available in a lot of different places. And if America isn't your thing, if you're like, Screw America, or just a gentler version of that. There's also uh, Ariel, a whole bunch of other stuff. Let me see what else is there. Ooh. Yeah. So if you're not into learning about the States, there's Ariel Ireland, Ariel Britain, um, a whole bunch of these. It seems like they got their whole thing figured out in terms of like what, what works with these. Uh, but there's so many different ones, and they're fantastic, and I highly recommend this. I'm going to sick pick an iOS app that's called Streamer for Chromecast. So one of the biggest downsides to having iOS is that if you want to mirror your phone, you have to do it to an Apple TV, which I don't want on Apple TV. I got Chromecast everywhere. My family has Chromecast. And often what happens when we visit my family, like this past weekend, I was at my parents' place and we're looking for somewhere to rent for March break down in Florida. And what happens is like, I'll bring up the app um, and I'll just be scrolling through listings. And I want to show the four or five other people in the room what's on my phone. And you can't mirror your phone to a Chromecast. You have to mirror to an Apple TV. Um, however, there's this app that came out. I don't know when it came out, but it's awesome. It takes advantage of the screen recording feature in iOS. So it, it takes a screen record and it immediately pipes it into a Chromecast. So it, it enables just like perfect screen mirroring from an iOS device to a Chromecast device or, or even the Google Home with a, with a screen. And this is amazing. I'm so happy. I, I like tweeted it out and I got 5,000 Android people being like, yeah, we have that already. And it's it doesn't just know. in the operating system. It's yeah. one click away. iOS makes you download an app and click like eight things to get it. Yeah. Android rules in that regard. So it, it wasn't even possible at all. It, like this is a, a bonafide hack uh, in order to get it to work, but it works great. Um, I'm so happy to actually have it up and running. Uh, so check it out. It's called Scre Streamer for Chromecast. Nice. 
Yeah, must have. I, I used the Android functionality for that all the time. So uh, been missing that in my, my iPhone. Yeah, you should get it. I got so many people tweeting me being like, why would you need that? Or some guy was like, why don't you just do a video and then play the video back? And I was like, that's not what it is. It's not the same thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, but I love it. I'm so happy to have this. Cool. Um, shameless plugs. I'm going to shamelessly plug my beginner JavaScript course. It's at beginnerjavascript.com. It is the fun exercise heavy approach to learning modern JavaScript from scratch. Had a whole bunch of people go through it already. It's a big course. So like I had to wait a couple of weeks to get like the first reviews from people. I also see people jumping around just to the things that they want, which is which was my hope with this course. So you just like oh, I need I need help with hoisting and functions. And I also want to do all of the exercises just to learn a little bit more. And, and you see people jumping around, which is cool. So check it out. Beginnerjavascript.com. Use coupon code syntax for an extra 10 bucks off. Whoa. Uh, I'm going to plug leveluptutorials.com forward slash pro. This is the pro subscription for Level Up Tutorials. And what you do is you get access to every single course that's available on Level Up Tutorials right now, along with 12 additional courses if you sign up for the year because we release a new course every single month, like a magazine subscription. These things are awesome. If you're a level up pro, you also get the ability to vote on the kind of stuff you want to see. Let us know uh, in how to improve. You also get access to commenting. And very soon, if not by the time that this episode releases, actually probably not, but very soon we'll have some uh, really nice little updates that include courses and tracks to lead you through which courses you should take when. Uh, a lot of little nice little improvements coming to Level Up Tutorials this year, especially for pros. We have some really exciting things coming down the pipeline that I cannot wait. So if you sign up to become a pro for a year, you'll get access to that all year. LevelUpTutorials.com forward slash pro. Uh, that's all I got. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Peace. Peace. Head on over to Syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.